So what does it mean to be a man? How is that defined when you were a kid? What message did you receive when you were a kid about that? What message are you giving people today, young people, children today, about what it means to be a man? Is a man someone who can throw a perfect spiral, grow a full beard, not afraid of spiders? Is a perfect man, a strong man, one that can know his way under the hood of a car? Is our manhood threatened by strong women? At the gym this past week, I got on the leg extension machine after a girl got off of it, and I had to lower the weight. About, <laughs> about 30 pounds. <laughs> I think I heard the laughter in the gym, too. So does that make me less than a man? Vocabulary.com defines man or masculinity as the quality of manliness, habits, and traits that society considers to be appropriate for a man. This definition implies that masculinity could be cultural, that the habits and traits might change from time to time, culture to culture. What do you think about that? Is, is the understanding of masculinity universal across all cultures and all times? Or is it more circumstantial? Harry Styles caused a little bit of a stir in December of 2020 when he appeared on the cover of Vogue magazine. And he really uh, was raked over the coals as being a threat to masculinity. But that picture makes us all ask, what does it mean to be a man? What is a manly man? And if we look at the timeline of Western fashion as it relates to men, we might understand that <laughs> the history of our fashion doesn't always meet the standards of today's understanding of masculinity. Let's just take a look. This is King Henry VIII, standing six foot two with facial hair, and he had a playboy past six wives, two of which he had beheaded. And he was the epitome uh, of male virility. But look at him. Dressed in jewelry, a miniskirt, and silk tights. But he was considered the peak of masculinity. That was around 1500s. Let's uh, fast forward a century to the 1600s, late 1600s. Uh, King Louis the Fourteenth. I mean... Louis is just straight up rocking those tights. <laughs> Red heels and Brian May's exact hairstyle. Brian, <laughs> Brian Mays is the lead guitarist for Queen. But King Louis pulling it off. I mean, he's going to laugh at him. We did laugh at him, but in his day, nobody laughed at him. I mean, dude's got a sword and a sassy pose that seems to say, I dare anyone to laugh at me. I will eviscerate the first person who criticizes what I am wearing. King Louis popularized wigs for men. Women typically would wear their hair back and underneath a cap pinned in the back. But uh, King Louis introduced a fashion and 
So all the men began to pull out the Dolly Parton wigs, and, and uh, they would wear these wigs, and they would cover it with perfume to cover up the, the sweat and the lice because they didn't take baths very often in those days. And some of our own American male heroes uh, wore wigs. Now, George Washington was not one of those. The four presidents after Washington did wear wigs, but Washington had, uh, he had red hair, but he uh, put powder on it to make it look white because uh, that was fashionable in those days, and the white hair stood for knowledge and, and, and a sign of wealth. And so George Washington preferred, and this one he's got a nice little curl in his hair, but uh, most of, a lot of the times he'd wear his hair back in a ponytail. And uh, that, that is, in our culture, just not a picture of masculinity. So is it possible, and can we maybe at least give credence to the idea that whatever is masculine might change from society to society, from time to time? This is one of the most interesting pictures to me. Men at a time, uh, 1800s, would wear corsets. And those corsets started out kind of like a weightlifter's belt uh, to give support. But then there was this uh, uh, phrase that came out that made corsets very popular. And the phrase was a dandy. You remember the song, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Well, a dandy is a word that was used to describe, it wasn't a derogatory word, it just used to describe a very fashionable or maybe even a flamboyant type of man. And so men uh, who wanted to be fashionable would uh, wear these corsets to give them that wasp-type figure that we would consider very effeminate today, but it wasn't the case back then. In those days, the desirable body for men was not Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or the rock Dwayne Johnson. It wasn't big and brawny. It was very narrow, thin, very petite, more like a Harry Styles. The views and the images of masculinity seem to, to me, change over the years. So could it be that our view of masculinity that we might have in 2023 will not forever be the view of masculinity, that it very well could change in 10 years, in 50 years, in 100 years, maybe just in a month. I don't know. Is our culture view of masculinity the norm across cultures and times? Well, any first-year anthropology student will answer unequivocally no. Our norm of masculinity is not true across all cultures and times. Many of us have heard of Margaret Mead. She did a, made a trip to Papua New Guinea back in the 30s, and she wrote about that trip in this book, Sex and Temperament, in Three Primitive Societies. And she discovered a society, a culture in that area of, uh, on our planet in which the men's and women's roles were reversed to that which is true in America today, meaning that the men were very relational, the men were very social, the men enjoyed getting together uh, and just visiting with people, but the women were the breadwinners, the women were more assertive, and the women were even more dominant. And so, wow, is this such a contrast to how we would perceive masculinity today. So what does it mean to be masculine? 
on this Father's Day, what does it mean to be a manly type of a father if that is who your father is? How do we define it? Well, masculinity is a pretty hot topic right now. There are a lot of bloggers on it, a lot of writers on it. Our own United States senator uh, from Missouri has written a book expressing what he sees as a crisis of masculinity, and I'm not going to disagree. There probably is. But then he offers what he understands to be the cause of that crisis, and then he proposes a cure. A couple of years ago, uh, a United States congressman who's no longer in office made this comment at, at a speech. He said, all you moms out here, if you are raising a young man, please raise them to be a monster. And got an applause from that particular audience. Uh, one of the more popular bloggers today is Candace Owens, and she said, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East know this, knows this, and the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism, I'm not sure how that relates, but I haven't talked with her about that, is being taught to our children. It's not a coincidence, it's an outright attack. And there is, in our culture today, that particular view that masculinity, manhood, is under attack. And there is this movement to feminize masculinity. Well, this, I would love for them to take another look at King Louis XIV and to see, are we really reflecting a timeless view of masculinity or are we reflecting a cultural view of masculinity? You know, personally, as I think about my own journey in humanity and in maleness and everything like that, I've got to say, and I haven't talked with Denise about that, so Denise, you may want to excuse yourself. <laughs> it really won't, won't be bad. But, you know, as I look at our almost 43 years of marriage this September, I think the majority, if not all, of our problems have been because of my own struggle with masculinity versus femininity. And our problems have not been that I've been too feminine. The problems in our marriage, I think, have arisen out of a, uh, oh, we use that term toxic masculinity, but it is in the traditional masculinity that I was taught. And a traditional masculinity that I probably taught to our, our sons, Daniel and Devin, with not, not quite the extremism that it, with which I was raised with it. But the some of the issues that Denise and I have had have come out of that warped view of what it means to be a man. For example, uh, refusing to ask for help. That's probably been the biggest thing that Denise and I have, oh gosh, experienced so much frustration over that I just will not ask for help. And when she offers the help, it feels like my maleness is threatened. My identity is somehow threatened. I'm that just men shouldn't ask for help. Men don't need help. We are competent, and that's kind of how I was raised. And that has, I th would you agree with that, Denise? That's what I thought. <laughs> We're not going to have time for Q&A, Denise, so I'm just not going <laughs> to give a microphone to you. But that is so very true, and it really has been. And, and this view that carries out from that is maybe I was threatened by a woman who knew more than me. <laughs> Are you a ventriloquist? Because <laughs> that came from over here. 
Hmm. And I was unable to express my feelings. Now, I will cry. Yeah, at the drop of a hat. And I've done that for 43 years of marriage. But I was never able, and I'm still struggling with uh, explaining why I'm crying, with giving voice to the insecurity, with giving voice to the fear, with giving voice to what's going on in my heart, my mind that makes me emotional. Yeah, my, my issues have not been that I've been too feminine. My issues have been I have bought in to our present culture's view of what it means to be a man. And for me personally, may not be for you, but me personally, that has not been healthy. So, let's do this today. How do we define masculinity? Well, we're in church, and as we know, if we've grown up in church, the answer to every question you ever ask in church is this. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Now, that's kind of flippant. But let me propose this, that Jesus just may be the answer to the question about what does it mean to be masculine. I don't want to turn off anybody of other genders, so hold, stay, hold with me for right now, but we'll get to that. When American culture looks at Jesus as the picture of masculinity is really a little bit embarrassing. And most people have to reframe Jesus. Most Christians have a hard time taking the Jesus from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, and see in the Gospels this, the, the picture of masculinity. It's just embarrassing that Jesus would be the picture of maleness because Jesus said things like to love our enemies, and that just looks weak. To love our enemies seems like it's just one step away from being what we always tell our kids not to be, male or female or whatever, a doormat. Now, loving our enemies, that's not masculine at all. But Jesus was willing to be vulnerable and to appear weak. Jesus had the strength of God. There was one verse in the scripture that says that Jesus could have called down legions of angels when he was arrested. He had at his disposable, as disposal all kinds of strength. But he let himself be arrested and humiliated by the soldiers. And he stood silent, not defending himself before Pilate. The way Jesus responded to people seems to be contrary to how we teach our boys to respond to people. We teach our boys to stand up for themselves. But Jesus said nothing in his defense. We teach our boys not to cry. Big boys don't cry. But Jesus wept. We teach our boys to fight back. But Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. We didn't need a sword. And this type of Jesus that we see on the pages of the Gospels is very difficult for men to relate to because it contradicts everything that we've been taught about what a man is and what we're teaching, what men really are. 
I propose to you today to consider this question. Did Jesus really come to this earth to encourage men to be more masculine and to save men from women and the liberals? <laughs> Maybe Jesus is the model to all genders of what it means to be human. of what it means to be Christ-like. Could it be that all genders are to embody power, strength, and courage, and gentleness, and kindness, and goodness, and forgiveness, and vulnerability, and humility? You know, we teach our children, at least Denise and I did, that little song that Denise and I learned. Maybe you all did too. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. What's the rest of it? They are weak, but he is strong. And I remember before I knew any sign language, as a children, we just did signs to that. He is strong. And that's how he defines strength. And Joey, thanks for picking that song today. There are so many other ways to define strength that all genders can exhibit, not just masculine gender. So Jesus is strong, we say, we teach our kids, but what does that strength look like? There are every year Christian conferences at mega churches mostly, and normally those mega conferences will have in the title something about be strong or stronger band conference, and so these conferences will have tanks on the stage and they'll have bull riders on the stage and they'll do motocross and everything and all these manly man things. Well, I'd like to go to a men's conference and see a man up there reading a book, painting a great work of art, changing a diaper, <laughs> I really expected another gender to say something about that. <laughs> you know, maybe strength is not defined by one's ability to bench press or throw a football, wield a sword, or shoot a gun. I think what Jesus demonstrated in his life is that strength is found from the scars in both body, mind, and soul of the battle to reconcile. Jesus came, according to the Paul in 1 Corinthians, to reconcile this world to God. His entire life was devoted to the act of reconciliation. And he has the scars. Oh, gosh, if we're going to fight, fight for peace. If we're going to fight, fight for justice, for reconciliation among all people. So instead of defining masculinity with John Wayne or James Bond, do you think at least this group could define masculinity with Jesus? Let me show you an interesting passage to me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Men <laughs> are always sizing each other up. Who's the strongest? Who's the greatest? Who has the biggest 
hands. And the disciples were doing just that. They were sizing each other up and comparing themselves to other people, saying, who's the manliest man here? And while they were arguing, while they were smack-talking each other and trash-talking each other, without a word, Jesus got up, got a basin of water and a towel, and he knelt in front of the nearest disciple, And he began to wash that disciple's grimy, dirty feet. And a silence came over that room. You see, washing feet in Jesus' day was reserved for the person at the bottom of the ladder, for the lowest of the low. It was so low that there are some scholars who say that a Jewish person would not even require a Jewish slave to wash their feet. Washing of the feet was a sign to the Gentile slave, not the Jewish slave. The dirtiest, grossest job you could ever have was washing the feet of one another. And who was it that washed their feet? And none other than Jesus. Jesus got down and showing humility, showing vulnerability, He said by his action, the greatest person among you is the one who will serve. The one who will reconcile, the one who will be vulnerable, and the one who will be humble before you. So what would it look like if men became the greatest servants on the planet? Maybe, just maybe, men don't need to learn how to fight. Maybe to be a man, men don't need to learn how to shoot a gun. They don't need to learn how to be wild or to become a monster. We've got enough monsters today. Maybe what we need to do is to teach our boys, as we teach all people, to be humble, to be vulnerable, to be servants. Of all people. I think we just have to come to grips. (coughs) Excuse me. With the idea that Jesus did not fit our culture's view of what it means to be a man. When Jesus was on the cross. Jesus was demonstrating. And he was showing and expressing the opposite of what it meant to be a masculine person. Jesus was emasculated in every way on the cross. He was humiliated by the soldiers. He was stripped naked. We always see pictures of Jesus on the cross with a strategically placed towel. But the scholars tell us that there was no towel. There was nothing but just him. He was humiliated and emasculated and he cried out for help. He showed vulnerability upon the cross. And to the Roman mind, being on the cross was the most humiliating and despicable way to die. There was little manly about a man in the Roman culture who was crucified on the cross. But it could it be that Jesus on the cross, as he did when he was washing the disciples' feet, 
gave us a more intense measure, picture, image of what it means to be a man. Someone who is vulnerable. Someone who does cry for help. Someone who is willing to appear in the culture of their day as someone who is weak. That's why Paul writes this. We preach Christ, which is foolishness to the Gentiles. Foolishness. And I'm afraid with our view of manhood, we look at Jesus and say, that's not masculinity. But we just can't handle that particular type of that image of Jesus. And so we don't want to admit that he was helpless, that he was vulnerable, that he was appearing to be weak, that he cried out for help. And so in our Christian culture today, we have people making artwork where Jesus, with all of his Schwarzenegger muscles, breaks the cross. We just can't handle the truth that our view of masculinity was not one that Jesus expressed. You and I, if we look at Jesus, would not call him as one who was masculine. That word translated foolishness right there is a Greek word moroni, moronic we get, a moron. It's just moronic to die on the cross. So how could Jesus be a manly man when he's so clearly failed to do the manly things according to his culture. You know, masculinity, according to Jesus, doesn't require that we hide our emotions, that we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable, that we don't express why we're feeling what we're feeling. I was told, and I told my boys, and I really regret this, don't cry. And when Denise would come over with her nurturing instincts to pick them up and to hold them when they would fall down and scrape a knee, I'd encourage her to stand away and just let them be. Because real men don't cry. (laughs) And here I was, one of the most crying persons on the planet. So when we tell a boy who scraped his knee, Don't cry. I wonder what that little boy does with his emotions. If that little boy can't express his emotions through crying, where do those emotions go? Maybe anger, resentment, and hate leading to violence. Could it be, I don't know, I'm not a sociologist, but could it be the the rash of violence that we have in our country today is not because of the feminization of men, It's because our men aren't feminine enough. We don't let them cry. We don't let them be vulnerable. I don't know. It's above my pay grade. I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. I do like this mother a lot, what she did with her kid when he was expressing some emotions. Let's take a look at this video. Today, you did not make it no truth. So, you, you hurt my feelings, but I'm not going outside, so that's why I didn't want to make this a small choice. You know, earlier, I couldn't go outside, so I was still a little sad. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that was the consequence. But, after. 
My gosh. Gosh, I wish uh, life was like I play golf. Every shot I do on the golf course is a do-over. <laughs> I'd love to have some do-overs with that. So maybe our goal really should be about becoming more fully human. Not about becoming more masculine or more feminine, but just becoming human. You know, typically our culture sees things like courage as a masculine trait. So does that mean that a woman like Rosa Parks was not courageous? Or that a little girl like Ruby Bridges was not courageous? Why do we think courage and power and strength and assertiveness is the masculine, but uh, gentleness and vulnerability is the feminine? Why do we separate those two things? I look at the life of Jesus, and I just see a blend of both. And if we could just not get so hung up on gender and become instead primarily if not exclusively, yeah, yeah, I'll leave that word, exclusively focused on humanness. Just be a good human that involves courage and kindness, strength and weakness. You know, we look at Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, where Paul says, but, as he's talked about how a person who's not walking in the Spirit lives his life with anger and hate and, and, and unkindness toward each other. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, we look at those characteristics, and honestly, most of our culture sees those as feminine characteristics. Peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Those are practically all female characteristics. And we don't teach us just to be that. If we could just focus on this is what a person, regardless of their gender, looks like and acts like who is living by the Spirit of God within them. Yeah. An author that I really do appreciate, Terrence Real says, Boys don't hunger for fathers who will mold traditional mores of masculinity. They hunger for fathers who will rescue them from it. They need fathers who have themselves emerged from the gauntlet 
of their own socialization with some degree of emotional intactness. Sons don't want their father's balls. They want their hearts. And for many, the heart of the father is a difficult item to come by. Let's raise good humans.